feast. Uh, so we're not going to read through Leviticus 23 uh, today, uh, but I'll just go ahead and tell you, if you want to read it on your own, it lists for us eight feasts. And so we're going to look at those eight feasts over these weeks and then tack on to the end of it, uh, Feaster, I mean Easter. Uh, and, and that'll be uh, how, how we finish the series. And so the following feasts are what is mentioned in Leviticus 23. Sabbath, which is celebrated every week. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, Yom Kippur, tabernacles, and then, of course, to that we add Easter. So, today we're going to look at the first feast listed, where it says in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. In December 2019, Derek Thompson wrote in an article for The Atlantic titled, Three Theories for Why You Have No Time. So, raise your hand if you have tons of time on your hands. Oh, no one? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's no one. We are all busy, right? Every single one of us is always running with a full calendar. It's always being added to. We are never not busy, right? We're all overwhelmed with our duties. And so, in this article, he begins with a hypothetical. He says, Imagine that you came into possession of a magical set of new technologies. And these new technologies could automate and expedite every single part of your job, every single part of what keeps you busy. These technologies can all of a sudden make them automated and expedited. What would you do with the extra time? Maybe you'd pick up a hobby, have more children, right, Navarros? Always can rely on them to have more children. Or learn to luxuriate in the additional leisure. But what if I told you, he asks, what if I told you you wouldn't do any of those things you would just work the exact same amount of time as before. So even if, all of a sudden, you had these incredible technologies to take everything that you're doing and expedite them or automate them, and now you have all this extra time on your hands, you wouldn't use that extra time on your hands for anything but working more. He then traces the history of the development of certain technologies over the past hundred years that have expedited every process and duty that's included in housework. He looks specifically at housework. Cooking, cleaning, laundry, grocery shopping, etc. And here's what he found in looking through that history. In spite of the development of time-saving technology, exactly zero hours of labor have been saved in the home. He says housewives that were working 50 hours a week to tend to their home... Then, after all these uh, incredible technologies were developed, spent 50 hours a week tending to their home. And so he explains this seemingly crazy conclusion with three reasons. First, he says, technology leads to higher expectations. And more expectations create more work. And isn't it true that we function this way? 
There's a great way to do this task faster. Okay, cool. Now I've saved an hour. What am I going to do with this hour? Well, this means that I have time now for this other task that people before me didn't have time to do. Now I have time for this task. And so all we do is we continue to move the goalposts. The expectations rise and the goalposts move. Cultural expectations change. And we just work in a different way. So he says, for example, in cultures past, people used to go weeks or months without bathing or cleaning their clothes. That was the cultural expectation. But then technology developed that allowed people to do their clothes on a regular basis and bathe on a regular basis. Time-saving technology that made us cleaner people. Thank God for that, I think. But what's the result of that? We're overloaded with laundry all the time, every single day. And the laundry just keeps coming and coming and coming, especially if you have children in the house and they like to wear something once and then leave it on the floor and then it gets covered in dog hair and you have to wash it for the millionth time. Amen? Anyone? Second, he says, modern overwork is class and status maintenance. Meaning, now we spend more time in competing with others for success. If they have more time to get more work done, they will. And if they do more than me, they'll succeed more than me. So, I need to do more work that's been freed up by this time-saving technology to keep up with them. So keeping up with the Joneses is not just a matter of cultural expectation. It's also a matter of keeping up. Now I have time to do what everyone does. And if I don't, now I'm the weirdo. If my kid doesn't bathe for three weeks, that's on me now. Who'd have thought? Finally, he says that technology only frees people if work Uh, frees people from the work if the boss or the government or the economic system allows it. Whatever expectations are set by those in authority have to be met, right? So employees can be reached by their bosses 24 hours a day, seven days a week on their phones, even on their day off. Every single one of us carries our smartphone with us everywhere. Very few of us ever don't have it with us. And if we ever do find ourselves without our phones, we're like, oh my God, my hands are missing. What's going on? But now our employers can reach us whenever they want. It doesn't matter what day it is. Even among coworkers, not just the employees, but, uh, employers, but even among coworkers, there's this expectation that we're always going to be in touch. In one survey, 30% of people said that they contacted colleagues about work on weekends and expected a same-day response. There are times when people from work are texting me, and my wife looks at me and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, ah, they're asking me a question about work. And she's like, you're not at work. You're at home. Put your phone down. I'm like, all right. You're right. If the place burns down, it's not on me. Let it burn. (laughs) She says, yeah, let it burn. But is this biblical? Is this what God expects of us? This always working, this never stopping, this consistent pushing forward and pushing forward and pushing forward. 
And here's a better question. Is it even possible to escape that? Is it even possible for us to have any kind of margin? I want you to understand, as I'm saying this to you, I'm saying it as someone who knows what it means to work 80 plus hour weeks, okay? When we moved here, that was my reality, working 80 hours a week, seven days a week. So I know what it means to say, when am I ever going to have time for margin? When am I ever going to have time to take time off? How on earth am I supposed to do that? I understand. The answer is yes, it is possible. But it is through a discipline. And disciplines must be practiced. Disciplines require sacrifice. Disciplines also give us great benefit. And the discipline that we're going to be looking at today is the discipline of rest. So here's where we're going to go today. I'm going to show you that both physical and spiritual rest are established by the perfect design of God for our benefit. We're going to see that resting is actually an act of faith. And then we're going to see how rest contributes to what God is able to do in us and through us. And hopefully talk about some practical ways to put this discipline into practice. So, we're going to be kind of all over the place in the Bible today. Um, I didn't have time. <laughs> there's, uh, there's the irony for you, right? I didn't have time to put all the texts on the screen since there's a bunch of them. So make sure you have your Bible or your, uh, your digital Bible with you. Um, and prepare to be like a third grader in Awana sword drills. Whoever gets there fastest wins. Um, so let's begin by looking at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Again? He's there again? Yes. I hope someone is keeping a tally of that. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this. Then the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. God established the rhythm of rest from the beginning. When it was perfect. Again, we've, we've talked so many times through the first three chapters of Genesis. And we've looked at the, the fact that this is how it's supposed to be. Right? When God created everything and he said, it is good. It is very good. It is complete. And, and we've looked at the fact that, that the eternity that we are awaiting is a recreation of what was broken. And so from the first two and the last two chapters of the Bible, we learn a tremendous amount of how things are supposed to be. And here, from the very beginning, God establishes the rhythm of rest. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, why? Why did God spend the seventh day resting? Was God tired? Was he tuckered out from all his creative work? Well, the answer to that is, of course not. Of course, God was not tired. God himself has no need for rest. He doesn't get tired. His strength is perfect, and it is infinite. So it's not like he needed to take a break for his benefit. 
what God was doing was he was setting a pattern for humanity. God created all of this, in a sense, for us to experience him. It was all meant to point us upward, but all of these things were established for our benefit. God, in this, is setting a rhythm for us to follow. He wasn't resting for his benefit. He was resting for ours. Like God, we work. We set about doing tasks. We subdue. And then we rest. Not because there isn't any more work to be done. Because we know that after this seventh day, God didn't just put his feet up and leave all of creation to tend to itself. I'm done. See you guys in heaven. It's not what happened. Far from it. God goes back to work. But before going back to work, he, he purposely puts in place this Sabbath day. Intended to refocus and rejuvenate our hearts as we purposely and intentionally set our hearts on him. So follow along as we look at some other scriptures to support this. So first here we have God resting in the creation week. Then in Exodus, we find an explanation for this. Okay, so in Exodus 20, God is giving Moses the law, specifically the Ten Commandments. Okay, so these are not Moses' words, these are God's words. Moses here is quoting God, and so what we find here is God himself actually explaining why he rested on the seventh day. Okay, and so we're, if we're asking that question, why did God rest on the seventh day? Well, who better to ask than God, right? So, let's read in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what do we find here? We find that God established this seventh day as a pattern for man to follow. God did all of his work in six days and then set aside the seventh day, the Sabbath, in order to be a day of holy rest to the Lord. That, that's how it reads in verse 10. It is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. The Hebrew word uh, for Sabbath is the word Shabbat, which means to stop to cease, to rest, to pause. And so God establishes this pattern, and he makes it holy, and he says, I'm going to put into the rhythm of mankind a consistent pause to intentionally turn their hearts upward toward me. This is what God established, that the Sabbath would be a day of rest for man, to turn his heart to God, to refresh and to refocus. It is for our good. This is not just some arbitrary command. 
And, and that's what we turn so many of God's commands into, right? Just some arbitrary rule that God made up that we have to follow in order to make us happy. Hey, you know what? I just hate it when people work on seventh days. Ah! No, God put it there for our benefit. When we fast forward to the New Testament, what we find is that the Jewish religious leaders failed to understand this. They, they failed to understand the purpose for the Sabbath. The Pharisees were incredibly legalistic. They literally invented hundreds of laws. Hundreds of laws for themselves and for the rest of Israel to follow. Ironically, they turned everything into work, including the Sabbath. They wrote laws that took God's command not to work on the Sabbath, and then they extrapolated from that to monumental degrees. They actually put 39 categories of laws in place. 39 categories of laws so that a faithful Jew would not break the Sabbath command. For example, they said it is not allowed for you to light a fire, for you to pick grain, for you to carry items over a certain weight longer than a certain distance. Riding is work, cooking is work, making things is work. So none of those things are allowed. To break the Sabbath, to break any of those laws makes a person deserving of punishment, is what they said. Now, it may be difficult for us to understand what this might look like in the ancient world. So let's look at some examples in the modern world to illustrate how far from God's purpose this actually is. Modern Orthodox Jews have taken the 39 categories of the Sabbath law in the Mishnah, and they've created modern ways to follow them. Enter the following items. The hot mat, the shabalb, the Sabbath-made oven, and the kosher fridge ease. The Sabbath elevator and the shabalb app. Real things. Didn't make it up. For Orthodox Jews, electricity is strictly regulated on the Sabbath day. The Mishnah, as we've already talked about, the laws state that lighting a fire is prohibited. So for modern application, that would mean turning on any kind of electrical current is akin to lighting a fire. So one is not allowed on the Sabbath to turn on a light bulb or to plug something into an outlet. Writing is not permitted, so texting or emailing is prohibited. Cooking over flame is prohibited, of course. So what is a modern person to do in this world? They can use a hot mat. Hot mat is essentially a hot plate that is plugged into the wall before the Sabbath begins. So the day before, they plug it in, and it stays at a consistent heated temperature. So a person can put a bowl of soup, for example, onto the hot mat and have a warm meal without plugging anything in or turning on any heat. Similarly, the Sabbath oven is uh, a mode on the oven that turns on automatically to a predetermined temperature without any user intervention. And it also ensures that the oven light doesn't turn on when you open the door, since that would break the law of lighting a fire. The shabalb also protects against lighting a fire by turning a light on. So a timer is set for that bulb to stay on during the day and put itself out 
at night. The kosher fridge ease is a small device that you fasten onto the switch in your refrigerator to make sure that the light doesn't turn on when you open the door. Well, what if a person has to go to work or stay in a hotel? Well, then you look for a hotel that has a Sabbath elevator. It would be breaking Sabbath laws if you pushed any buttons. Because if you push a button on an elevator, it opens an electrical circuit. And it lights up the button. So, a Sabbath elevator is automatically set to stop at every floor and open the doors by itself. So a person can walk on, not do any work, and still get upstairs. And finally, there's the Shaboth app that allows a person to just text by speaking, without lighting up the screen, without pushing any buttons. Now, do you think any of those are even close to the reason why God instituted the Sabbath? Do you think that is what his heart was when he said in Exodus chapter 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Do we, I mean, think about what kind of God that is, right? We, we have to stop and think about what kind of God writes this law. What, what's the heart of this God? Do we think that God is up in heaven, looking down, waiting, and he's got his fist cocked, and he's waiting for someone to push a button or flip a light switch? Ah, you flipped the lights on. I'm coming for you. Of course not. Of course not. That, that's, that's not why God instituted the Sabbath. That is not his heart at all. Look with me at Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Matter of fact, let's rewind to, to verse 23. One Sabbath, he, he being Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to them who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not Man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That verse 27 is is key. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. His disciples in this passage have angered the Pharisees because they have broken one of the many laws that the Pharisees created. Ah, They pushed the button on the elevator. They're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. Ah, they turned on the stove. Ah, they opened the oven. Ah, your disciples are texting. So they're angry. The disciples have picked some heads of grain because they're hungry. And so what Jesus does is he points the Pharisees to the Old Testament, to this story where David also broke the Sabbath. And then he makes the most important point He says, God made the Sabbath to benefit man. He didn't make the Sabbath for man to be enslaved to more rules. Not the point. And so this, ladies and gentlemen, is the point that I'm trying to make from from the very beginning. God has always had our best interest at heart. 
And he puts these rhythms and these frameworks in place to protect us, to keep us focused on what's best for us. He commands us not to neglect Sabbath rest because to do so would be to our harm. It's not that he's waiting to harm us if we break the Sabbath rule. He's saying it is to your detriment if you break this rule. I'm giving this to you for your good. Make no mistake, God is saying to us, you need rest. Go and take rest. You need physical rest. You need spiritual rest. And taking that rest is not only a benefit for you, it's also an act of trust, an act of obedience in the providence of the Lord. So here's point number two. Rest is an act of trust. Rest is an act of trust. Something undeniably true about our culture is the all-consuming consumerism, right? We are driven to continually work in order to be able to purchase more, to gain more. We have this American-made drive of being self-made, of building ourselves a kingdom without having to rely on anybody else. And so we've placed the responsibility for a good life where our needs are met and our comforts are fulfilled squarely in our own laps. And while it's true, absolutely, that it's good to work hard. Absolutely, it's good to work hard. And we are responsible for being faithful and being good stewards. What's not true ever is the thought that we are self-made. Everything we have, everything we own, everything we get is a gift from God. And when we rest, we're actually showing God that we trust in him to meet our needs. So, let's look now at Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. Everyone's favorite book. Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. This is a passage titled, The Sabbath Year. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker, and for the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle, and for wild animals that are in, in your land. All its yield shall be for food. This is a strange practice, wouldn't you say? Now we've moved from taking a Sabbath day to taking a Sabbath year. Somebody say, sign me up for a Sabbath year, <laughs> right? Sign me up for a Sabbath year. Yes, Lord, please and amen. <laughs> Where do I get one of those? Uh, but seriously, why, why would God command this? And notice that this Sabbath year is one that the land is taking, <laughs> okay? It's not, it's not the people. The answer is in verse 6. Verse 6 says, 
the Sabbaths of the land shall provide food for you, yourself, your male and female slaves, for your hired worker, and for the sojourner who lives with you. Throughout the six years that they are planting and harvesting, they are trusting that God is going to give them enough to set aside for the Sabbath year. Specifically in that sixth year, they're trusting that God is going to give them abundance in order that there's extra for that seventh year. Can you imagine the amount of faith that it takes to not farm for a year in an agrarian society where that is your entire life? That is literally setting your life in the hands of God. Which is exactly the point. It's exactly the point. A parallel to this would be Uh, in the story of the Exodus, where God provides manna from heaven. And he says that they're going to gather this manna for six days, but not on the seventh day. Gather enough on the sixth day for abundance. On the seventh day, there will be none, right? They're, They're trusting that God is going to provide them enough. And they're only gathering through those first five days enough for one day. Anything that they tried to keep goes bad. And any time they go out to look on the seventh day, there's judgment. He says, I'm going to give you enough. You have to trust me. When we rest, what we're saying to God is, I trust you. I trust you to provide for me. I trust you to take care of me. You are my source of sustenance, not me. You are where the blessings come from, not me. Now, we work hard those first six days. We farm and we gather, and we plow, and whatever else farmers do, (laughs) watering, and weeding, and shooting critters. I I don't know. I've never farmed before. We, We do all those things for six days, and then the seventh day, we rest. Rest gives us proper perspective. Rest says, what I need most, what I need more than anything else, is God. Much anxiety comes from pressure that we put ourselves under to shoulder the burden of taking care of ourselves and our families. It's all up to me, is what we say. No, rest, rest says, it's all up to God. I'm intentionally putting this in God's hands. Now, a Sabbath year is a command not given directly to us, sadly, but a Sabbath day is. When we place our trust in God in order to take a Sabbath, we know that he's going to abundantly meet our needs. Um, A simple modern example of this would be Chick-fil-A, right? Chick-fil-A is the perfect example for this. Chick-fil-A, as we know, is closed on Sundays. As Kanye sang about, it is closed on Sundays. And it's sad, and we get that hankering. Sunday, and we get that craving, "Ah, I wish I had Chick-fil-A, but we can't because they're not open. As a result of not being open on Sundays, Chick-fil-A loses over a billion dollars a year. We're we're talking about a ton of money by being closed. Yet in spite of that, in spite of that, for the seventh straight year, they are rated as the top fast food restaurant. And they are ranked third in total sales in fast food restaurants. Number one, of course, is McDonald's. Sells more than anyone. 
But amazingly, Chick-fil-A has fewer franchises than any other fast food chain. McDonald's, in fact, has six times as many locations. Six times as many locations. But the average Chick-fil-A does double the daily sales as the average McDonald's. So on any given day, Chick-fil-A is doing twice as much as McDonald's is. And so being closed one-seventh of the week, in spite of all that they lose, they're in this incredibly powerful position where every year they're gaining more and more of the market share. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, said that he did this because he wanted to follow the Sabbath. He said he wanted to make sure that his restaurants were closed on Sundays to give his employees a day of rest and worship if they so choose. So I think God has taken pretty good care of them, in part at least, for that discipline. It's an example of the truth that when we take time to rest, when we stop working, when we focus on God, God is the one who provides. Point number three is this. Fruitfulness follows restfulness. Fruitfulness follows restfulness. Here is perhaps one of the greatest benefits of rest. After we get that rest, we're far more productive. We're more efficient. We're far more fruitful. If you've ever known someone who has a newborn, you know what lack of rest looks like. And people in that situation go through life in a dense fog. And they do things like leave their keys in the refrigerator and forget that the stove is still on from last night. I do those things anyway, but you get the point. When we are without rest, when we're running on empty, we make very little progress. Uh, So turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we'll look at a couple more lessons here. In Mark chapter 6, we're going to look at the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And in this, we'll look at a detail that maybe you might have missed in previous readings. And as I've often said, it's, it's in those small, forgotten details that often we find the most life-changing things. So, in verses 7 through 13 of this chapter, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to do missions work. He sends them out in these towns, two by two, where they're going to go from house to house healing the sick and casting out demons, and most importantly, preaching the gospel. And this is going to be hard work. They're not taking any creature comforts with them. They're doing kingdom business. It's going to be exhausting. Then we skip down to verse 30. So we'll look at verse 30 through verse 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. You've been working. You've been doing what I've been telling you to do. Come away to a desolate place and rest. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Thanks a lot. We were just trying to go to a desolate place and rest, and all you people showed up. 
when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. They're like, uh, teacher, remember why we're here? Because it's desolate. Send all these people away. Is it, oh, it's not Sunday. Send them to Chick-fil-A. But they answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said, shall we buy and go 200 denarii worth of Chick-fil-A sandwiches and fries and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many chicken sandwiches do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two waffle fries. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the chicken sandwiches and the waffle fries, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the sandwiches and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two waffle fries among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the chicken sandwiches. And those who ate the Chick-fil-A were 5,000 men. I did not include this in my notes, and I need to stop. (laughs) So, They report to Jesus all that they've done, right? Jesus has been doing these things himself. They're all exhausted. What does Jesus do? Jesus tells them, come away and rest. Come pause. Come refresh. And so they get in this boat, and they go to the other side of the lake, and the crowds see where they're heading, and they beat them there. But Jesus looks at these crowds, and he has compassion, and he he begins to teach them. And the disciples are getting tired and hungry, and so are the people. And so they try to tell Jesus, send them away. But Jesus takes the offering of a little child, takes a kid's meal, and he uses it to feed thousands of people. Of course, you know this detail at the end, that this was just 5,000 men. So the conservative estimate of the number of people there, including women and children, is probably over 10,000. So the point here is that this miracle is preceded by a command to rest. They've been going out and doing ministry work, and they're tired. They're hungry. And Jesus tells them to pause. And then Jesus brings abundance. As the disciples rest, Jesus feeds 10,000 people. They are sitting and watching. They are on the sidelines. Jesus is on the field making plays. They are doing what Jesus told them to do. Come to a desolate place and sit down. Rest. And then Jesus feeds everyone else. And there's abundance. There's leftovers. Everyone gets baskets of this. This follows what I said earlier about trusting in God to provide as we rest. When we trust in God to take the time to rest, he will take small things and make them great in his own power. He will multiply the little that we offer. If we are faithful, if we are obedient, if we say, Jesus, all I can, all I can bring to you is this small little thing. I got a five-piece nuggets, Jesus. This is all I can bring you. 
Jesus is going to feed thousands of people. Actually, it's not five-piece anymore, is it? Oh, it's five-piece now. It used to be six. I feel like there's a lesson there. There's got to be a sermon point in there somewhere, how Chick-fil-A went from six-piece nuggets to five-piece nuggets. But I don't know what it is today. So, now that we've firmly established the importance of rest, we come to the great question of how, right? How? How do I do this? How can I, in this incredibly busy schedule, how can I, in these expectations of more, 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 ever rest? Here's point number four. Sometimes Sabbath comes in pockets. Some of you may be in a season where you're working seven days a week. I've been there. Some weeks, I'm still there. This coming weekend is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm working overtime. April, I'm working every single weekend. Okay? It's going to be like 30 days without a day off. Okay? I, I, I know what it's like. I, I've been there. Sometimes it is hard. Sometimes it is impossible to set aside an entire day, especially if you have kids. So some of you might be saying, listen, I, I would love to do that. I'd love to. But when am I going to rest? I want us to first remember again, again, God didn't command Sabbath so that he could punish us, punish us if we don't do it. All right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He commands it for our own good. And he also has grace when things out of our control take away that opportunity. We see that here in this story, right? Jesus says, come, let's, let's go to a desolate place and rest. And then 10,000 people show up. So I want you to notice something else about this story. And that is that Jesus and his disciples are taking small pockets of rest in the middle of this busy schedule. Um, verses 45 and 46. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So, Jesus feeds the thousands of people, and then he says to his disciples, Guys, thank you. Get on the boat. I'll meet you there. <laughs> now, he's going to meet them there in a very incredible way. And he doesn't tell them that. But he says, Guys, get in the boat. I'm going to take care of the people. I'll meet you on the other side. This boat ride to the other side is going to be a ride that takes two hours in calm weather. This is a two-hour ride across the sea. And so part of this is a pocket of rest. It's a pocket of rest. When Jesus meets them, they're in the boat. Now, this isn't to say that the disciples and Jesus never took a Sabbath day because they absolutely did. And the Pharisees didn't agree with what their typical Sabbath looked like because Jesus still ministered on the Sabbath. But what Jesus shows us here is that he also took small pockets of time throughout the week. 
to unplug, to be by himself, to pray, to rest. Look at, look at what he does here. He says, you guys can go to the other side. I'll dismiss the crowd. You're going to have two hours in this boat. And then what does he do? What does he do? Verse 46, after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus leaves. And this is not the, the first time that we see this. Often, over and over and over, we see Jesus leaves the people, goes to a desolate place by himself to pray. Here it says he goes up on a mountain. Goes up on the mountain to pray, and he takes this pocket of time. This pocket of time. He took naps when he could. In another story, when the storm is rocking the boat, what is Jesus doing? Sleeping. (laughs) Jesus took a nap. Okay? Think about that. God took naps. All right? Don't be ashamed when you need one. (laughs) Jesus needed them too. Jesus connected with the Father in prayer on a regular basis. Sabbath rest doesn't necessarily mean you need to take a whole day to do absolutely nothing. Oftentimes, that is not realistic. Sometimes that can be unhealthy. Sabbath can also be and should be celebrated in community. Sabbath should be celebrated as a family. Hopefully, most of us can take at least a portion of a day each week to put down our work and enjoy the blessings of God. And God will not be mad at you if you still have to do a load of laundry that day, okay? As long as you are taking those pockets of intentional time to get away, to refresh, to refocus, to have time with the Lord. Even if it's just a few minutes at a time. So, here's a specific thing I want to give you this week. This is your feast that I want you to take home with you and celebrate this week. This week, be intentional, because it will not happen if you are not intentional, okay? This will not happen accidentally, I promise you. You will not accidentally back your way into some time off. If you figure out how to do that, send the rest of us an email with specific instructions, okay? It's not going to happen by accident. Take intentional time each day to connect with the Lord, through reading scripture, through prayer, and take a Sabbath day this week if possible. If it can't be a whole day, let it be a portion of a day, all right? As I told you before, this coming week, I have to work every single day. I'm working Monday through next Friday. (laughs) But I can tell you this, that I am going to be, my wife is going to look at me, she's going to hear me say this, all right? I am intentionally going to take Sabbath rest at home. I'm not working 24 hours a day, all right? Thank God. I'm not working 24 hours a day. There will be opportunity for me to come home from work and then be home after I leave work. Spend intentional time in community celebrating Sabbath rest with my family. During this time, that you take Sabbath rest. Enjoy God's blessings. Eat with your family. Read the word. Pray. Do something relaxing, like taking a nap, like Jesus did. 
or a hot bath, which I'm sure he would have done if he had the opportunity. It, it could be something very simple. That This is something that I love to do. I, I have this playlist in my, on my phone that's just piano music. And I'll take a shower, and I'll put that on, and just zen for like 15 minutes. Unplug. Pray. Let the hot water run over me and listen to this calming music and focus my heart on the Lord. It's a pocket of rest. Be intentional about rest. Those of you who are married, those of you who have roommates, those of you who have friends who are here, hold each other accountable to that. Tell your spouse, I'm holding you accountable to this. Go and take some rest. Let me mind the minions. You rest. And then switch. Be intentional. Because if you aren't, you'll never get it. And if you never get it, you'll be burnt out because of it. God has given us Sabbath to celebrate. So let's celebrate it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Sabbath rest. Thank you that you commanded us, commanded us to do something for our good. Thank you, Lord, that the Sabbath is not a suggestion.